0: Hi, everybody. We have a very exciting episode today. We have Brendan Moorhead, who has put together an Eat for Earth event. It's a little bit of a longer episode, but I know you're going to find that super fascinating. And keep ready for that word, fascinating and fun. I, it is a lot of science, but it's really understanding that the earth we live on is regenerative, as is our body, and that it is not fateful what is going on. We do not have to be you know, oh gosh, there's no more good food on the planet because that is not true. And Brendan Moorhead is here to explain to you how we can accomplish that, how we can work together and also give you access to more information for free than even you have right here. Do listen to the end. It's a great episode, even if you have to break it up. I know it's a little bit longer, but thank you all for listening. We really appreciate it. And we are so looking forward to understanding the Eat for Earth event and why this wonderful Sanford graduate biologist and I became fast friends and fascinated at the science that we both do. Talk to you soon. Welcome back to The Beats with Kelly Kennedy, and I'm very excited because my new friend Brendan Moorhead and I had a podcast for his Eat for Earth a few, I don't know, a month ago or so, and it literally just, we could not stop talking. I felt like, oh my gosh, these two science geeks got together and outpoured all this wisdom from him, and I wanted to be able to introduce all of you to him and his Eat for Life agenda, and he's got some other things that he I think he's working on because he is one of the prominence, as far as I'm concerned, truly educating people about how the body works and how we need to live on this planet as a human organism. So thank you so much for joining us today, Brendan, and tell us a little bit about how the Eat for Earth project started. But I do want to say that he is a brilliant biologist and uh, environmental engineer. and He went to Stanford, so he's now dummy. So welcome, Brendan. Thank you
1: so yeah eat for earth is uh, has actually a a, was in a way it was born 34 years ago (laughs) so when i was uh uh, just getting interested in sustainable agriculture in college and uh, at the same time i was losing my health actually uh from uh a number of things that happened when when i was a teenager so when i was 15 i had three cycles of um three courses of tetracycline which is enough to wipe out anybody's microbiome and make sure it doesn't come back (laughs) um and and we didn't know anything right nobody really talked about probiotics back then and so um that was the beginning and uh my health basically crashed at a point where i was getting more and more interested in what we were referring to as sustainable agriculture back then so i went through this long period of chronic fatigue and so forth and it really interrupted that trajectory. But then as I started to get my health back, um, I started to pick up on the thread of what had, what was starting to be called regenerative agriculture and saw some podcasts and some, you know, um, uh, rather uh, TED talks. So the TED Talk in 2013 by Alan Savory was kind of life-changing for me because I had gone through a whole period where, um, you know, I became vegetarian, I was trying to be vegan. I had, you know, you know, I understood that uh, that rainforests were being, uh, you know, cut down uh, in part to make way for cattle. Although it's a lot more complicated than that, and you can't simplify it to that degree even back then, um, because usually there's a succession. Usually they come in and they do some some mining, and then they come in and they, you know, take the trees, and then they turn it over to other people to do, you know, uh, slash and burn agriculture. That's usually not the first step in the Amazon, but sometimes it is. Anyway, um, and now they're clearing forests for soy, which is, you know, corn, mainly soy that's going into um, animal feed. But actually, most of the soy goes to chicken and pork, not cattle. So there's a lot of there's a lot of complexity there. In any case, I went uh, whole hog into vegetarianism and veganism. And I really thought that that was important um, to save the planet. That was the main reason I went into it. Then along comes this TED talk by Alan Savory in 2013, and I had recovered maybe 60, 70% of my health um, at that point. And I was interested in, you know, picking up the thread again with with something to do with regenerative, with with what I was thinking of as sustainable agriculture. And then I started to learn that regenerative is um, really the term we should be using now as far as going to the next level, because we don't want to just sustain what's not really working that well. Uh, We need to actually totally regenerate the planet. And it turns out that this relationship between biodiverse plant communities and biodiverse soil organism communities is at the foundation of all of life on earth, including in the oceans. I mean, there's this dynamic interplay. And so as I was learning all of this, as far as, okay, we can, uh, restore grasslands, we can draw carbon out of the atmosphere and out of the oceans and all this, all these, um, different threads started coming together, starting with that TED Talk I saw by Alan Savory. I'm going to keep mentioning his name because people need to check it out if you haven't yet. It's already got 4 million views or something. Uh, And read his book, uh, Holistic Management, the third edition. That will just totally transform your paradigm about ecology, um, especially in what he calls brittle environments. It's a really key term. Tending to dive down the rabbit hole right here, so I want to try to bring it back. Um, but that's that was basically how I started to get interested in regenerative agriculture and realizing that that was also a key to restoring the nutritional integrity of our food supply. I didn't actually realize until I started to look into it just how depleted our food is. And I was thinking, wow, no wonder I'm having a hard time, you know, getting my health back because, you know, back in the '70s you know, there was, there were a lot of people doing, um, you know, raw food and juicing and this and that, and they were healing all kinds of stuff with, you know, 10 pounds of, of fresh produce juiced every day. Well, now it's like, you got to do 25 pounds or something at these, um, clinics that have that pat- particular focus, uh, as far as, uh, healing cancer and so forth. But, um, uh, so, yeah, so I found out, okay, wow, regenerative agriculture, Can actually restore the 90, you know, roughly 90% of the minerals that have been lost from our food supply. So we're eating, we're living on, you know, 10% of the minerals, um, maybe a little more on average because some have not been depleted that far. But certain minerals like copper are down to like you know 10-15% of what they were in our food supply um, 100 years ago. And um, so I decided to bring these two things together: uh, how regenerative agriculture can restore our food and our health and regenerate the planet.
0: So it's, it's very similar to the concept of the milieu therapy, the terrain therapy and biological medicine from a health perspective that I studied in Europe where they were on my own journey. Right. But to figure out that if you change the internal environment, then the cells in, in the space, you know, it, the space is the terrain and the cells are in the space. If you change the terrain, the environment, the cells will behave better. And essentially what you're saying is if we change how we're farming so that we're not depleting, but it's regenerating itself and supporting itself, it'll it'll not only add benefit to the soil, but it'll also regenerate and make the food more nutritional, correct? Yeah. Did I understand that right?
1: Yeah, well, the way plants get minerals from the soil is they they're essentially mined from the soil by the microbes and delivered to the root. And that happens in several ways. Um, and so we have, there's an interview with Elaine Ingham, PhD, in the Eat for Earth event where she, uh, explains the soil food web, which is a concept that she, uh, co-pioneered, I think it was back in the eighties. Hmm. So soil food web with, you know, capital letters, cause it's actually, it's a proper noun. It's a, it's a thing. And, um, and her whole business is based on that. She's a soil health consultant
0: and a researcher. So all her research is based on that. And so if you have a proper microbiome in the soil, it'll allow the the root of whatever the food that's growing to pull from the soil the minerals and the everything it needs to feed the plant so it has the nutritional content. Is that Yeah.
1: It? As one example, there's a type of fungus called mycorrhizal fungi. Okay. Fungi whatever Fun
0: guy no matter what yes like you
1: and so one type of this uh this uh, fungus organism will actually put it puts um uh like a hyphae into the plant root and the plant allows it certain species of plants most of them allow this certain species of plants do not associate with mycorrhizal fungi but most do and um and the, the fungal organism has a much broader network of hyphae that go out into the soil. Plus, it has a huge genome with all kinds of tricks uh, as far as producing enzymes and acids and so forth to grab the minerals from the sand, uh, silt, and clay in the soil. And um, so it can base it's basically dissolving that stuff out of the parent material. Um, and uh, And and it's also, you know, some of the minerals are bound up in the organic matter and so forth. So the fungal organism can pull this stuff into its body and then put some of it into the plant's root. And the plant will actually communicate with the fungal organism by giving it um, sugars and amino acids and so forth. But they're basically, it's barter. It's a barter system. So this this system- So
0: interesting.
1: Yeah, (laughs) so-
0: So interesting
1: what's interesting about conventional agriculture is because we keep putting on um you know potassium uh, npk you know uh nitrogen potassium and uh phosphorus nitrogen phosphorus and potassium the plants start to depend less and less on the mycorrhizal fungi and then they even stop associating with mycorrhizal fungi and you so you don't get all the trace minerals coming into the plants at the same at the same level Because you've got just the the three uh, growth limiting nutrients are the, you know, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, and the potassium. So you can grow green plants with that, but they're not going to be mineral uh, dense at all.
0: So in commercial farming, essentially, that's what they're using versus the regenerative farming. They're using this, and this is a naturally occurring fungal species, right? That's naturally occurring in the soil, or do they add it to the soil? I don't. I understand that well, if it's missing from the soil, you can add it. Yeah, that's one of the things that
1: sometimes happens when when people are transitioning from really dead soil back to you know a healthier soil. You can bring in mycorrhizal fungi.
0: Okay, so you can supplement it, or you can have it just created by the process of this regenerative farming that will continue to get created. But yeah, I, I mean, if
1: there's if there's any of it left in the soil. You can, you can kind of goose the biology through various methods to, um, to have it come back to life, you know, have the populations come back of the mycorrhizal fungi, but you can also uh, jumpstart it by, by bringing in uh, basically a probiotic for the soil that includes micro, mycorrhizal fungi.
0: And so that translated for you, at that point you had, were a vegan vegetarian, you're eating about 70% or you were 70% better than you saw this podcast or the Ted talk rather with Alan Savory. Savory? Savory. -hmm. Savory. Kind of read my own writing as I look down. Alan Savory. And then what happened? Did you change how you were eating after that? I of actually
1: already changed. This was actually about, this was quite some time after I'd started adding meat back in my diet. So I had been on a, I didn't last long vegan, but I was vegetarian for about eight years. The vegan episodes were, you know, no longer than a few weeks at a time. and at least I think that's about as long as they were, <laughs> um, and, uh, but in about, I think it was 1997 or 1998, somebody, I don't even know how this, like I was talking to somebody on the phone. She was like an energy healer and a massage therapist or something. I don't know. I don't even think we had met. And she said out of the blue, she said, you need to be eating meat again. I'm like, what? <laughs> there was just some reading she gave me. I'm like, yeah, you need to be, you need to eat meat. I'm like, Okay, so I started to eat meat again. And and it was actually hard to kind of jumpstart my digestion of meat again. But when I had it, I was like, Oh, my God, I've really been missing something because it, it was, you know, my body was telling me, Oh, my God, I need this. As far as my taste buds were telling me that my stomach was saying, I don't know if I can digest this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it took a while to, to come back. And um, there is a, a mechanism by which a high carb diet will actually reduce you know, high carb, low protein diet will actually reduce um, stomach acid production. So I kind of hypothesize that if you do that for a long time, you're down-regulating your uh, stomach acid production. It's not to say you can't get it back, um, but it can be a process. And that that's a challenge for a lot of people who've been um, a vegan for a while, or just vegetarian because, you yeah,
0: know- I, of- I did the same thing. I was a vegetarian for 10 years and then one weekend I had a mentor of mine put meat in my mouth and I basically ate meat three days in a row. And thank God there was an acupuncturist on that trip who basically salvaged me because my digestion was like, are you kidding me? Because I had enough stomach acid to break all that meat down, essentially. But I did. And that was their point that I wasn't feeling well enough. I wasn't having enough vigor. I didn't have enough life force. And I'm not a huge animal protein eater at all. I cut my iron calls me my husband calls me a reluctant carnivore like I eat it because I know that I need it at times and it makes me feel better but I don't love it so I always make sure that I love like I buy meat at a local farm who does regenerative farming and make sure that it's like high quality and the 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 animal felt love and ate good things and you know I'm I'm that person that cares about how my animal felt because I've slaughtered animals and I know what that's like I was raised you know I, I went to agricultural school at Cornell I've done that. And it's, it's not a pleasant experience. And if you aren't mindful of when you're doing it, it can really change it. So anyway, that's a whole sidetrack. Tell me about eat for earth. How did, so that started your journey, the Ted talk, mm-hmm. how did it translate into eat for earth?
1: Yeah. Eat for earth. I had, you know, just had this vision of um, putting together an interview series of people on, on the health side and on the, um, Uh, the agricultural side, and uh, just started reaching out to people. I I started going to conferences, um, enlisting people to speak in the event, and just from person to person. Uh, Got people, uh, a lot of people like the idea, you know, when I would describe it, they're like, oh, yeah, that sounds awesome. You know, (laughs) it's like, we need to be doing this. So,
0: And and so in my world, people come to us all the time, and they think that, because we claim that we're nutritional something or other i don't even know what we called ourselves for years and i just call myself a biological investigator but nutrition's a tough subject (laughs) talk to the reluctant carnivore over here that was a vegetarian for a long time It, it was a it's a tough subject
1: very tough because it's it's highly bio individual you know there's a lot of biological individuality that goes into it and a lot of people don't want to hear that or or they're just not intellectually predisposed to it because i think people um, it's probably just a human character trait that we tend to think, you know we tend to think in polarized ways. like it's either this or it's that. And so it's very easy to get into the idea that because there's so many great things about plant-based foods and a plant-based diet, because there's so many things wrong with conventional factory farming and, and I mean that just has to stop, period. Um, but does that mean we, does that mean that um, there's no planet healthy way to raise animals, and is there? And then there's the issue of uh, um, are, is animal food. I mean, there's there's evidence that seems to suggest that animal food increases disease risk, but that hasn't been well. Um, uh, but there's a lot of conflation between eating animal foods and eating processed foods and eating animal foods from a system that's uh, bioaccumulating pesticides and antibiotics and all kinds of stuff into the <clears throat> into the the animal uh, products. So. Uh, when you actually separate those out, and there hasn't been much research on that, but there's certainly research that, that shows that, um, or that at least suggests, and I'm not going to be able to quote any here yet, but uh, um, I don't have that prepared, but uh, that suggests that that people that do include uh, meat in their diet can be just as healthy as people who are um, predominantly vegetarian or even vegan, and there's also some evidence that people who are vegan are actually suffering some nutritional deficiencies and deficits that um, are impacting their fertility, their you know ability to have viable offspring, um, and uh, cognitive performance, things like that 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 can happen. I'm not saying that a vegan diet can't work for some people, but it seems to not work for most. And so there's got there's probably a middle ground, and there's also um, a continuum. And I'm kind of pulling together the evidence on all of this uh, that I can, everything I can find, because I'm fascinated by bioindividuality, especially in regard to um, you know food, nutrition, and diet, because that has become such such a divisive, you know, arena, and we really need to all come together. All the real food movements need to come together, and you know, and and celebrate the fact that. Uh, we can grow any kind of food in a way that heals the earth and that's regenerative agriculture whether you're doing it with animals or without animals. but with animals provides a lot of advantages uh, as far as I mean animals are basically roving composters
0: and dense nutrition yeah
1: there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of nutrient density in in the animal meat. so um, I mean people can argue back and forth about well can you get enough zinc without animal foods? Yeah, you can. Um, and can you get enough iron? Yeah, you can. Some people don't absorb non-heme iron very well, though. Um, and then there's also the issue of uh, what I want to say: uh, fat-soluble vitamins. So vitamin A does not exist in the plant kingdom. You've got beta carotene, but a lot of people don't convert beta carotene very well, and you can see this in your in your genetics. Just get your uh, run your you know SNPs from uh, 23andMe or many other companies put it through a filter and see if you have the the, the genes to convert beta carotene efficiently into vitamin A or not. Um, but beta carotene is not vitamin A. And yet you see on all the blogs on the internet, they'll say there's this much vitamin A in a carrot. There's not a bit of vitamin A in a carrot. <laughs> it's good, it's good. And people of certain ancestry do not get much vitamin A from carrots and squash and all the wonderful vegetables that are full of carotenoids. Um, And so those people are going to be more uh, dependent on either a supplement or on eating organ meats or whatever. I mean, that's what that's what human beings used to. I mean, I'm sure some people want to disagree with this. um, But if you look at human cultures that were, you know, look, Weston Price, who was a dentist, went out there and he looked at cultures in the early 20th century, looked for every single um, culture that had not been uh, too impacted by by industrialization who were eating a traditional diet that they've been eating for centuries or millennia. And all of them, all of them, uh, had a, put a high value on, uh, animal products, eaten raw that had fat soluble nutrients in them, particularly vitamin K2. He called it X factor at that time. And it's, we're pretty sure that it was vitamin K2. Now that we know more about vitamin K2 and how much vitamin K2 is in there in the plant kingdom. Not much. If you ferment, but if you if you ferment soy in the uh, into natto, that's a really good source of uh, vitamin k mm-hmm. two. totally vegan. Um, I am not aware of any other plant sources. It's well in your gut. So gut microbes, if you have a really healthy microbiome, you might be able to get some k two from that. But there is evidence suggesting that we can't get enough from that. But you know, I haven't looked at. The study cohorts of those research studies and you know do we know those people didn't have dysbiosis you know i don't know if they had been eating 100 hunter-gatherer diet and had a super diverse you know microbiome might they have produced enough vitamin k2 from plant foods maybe
0: so a diverse microbiome you just said right so this is something that I've noticed that when I go to the regenerative farm, for instance, she has different vegetables, different fruits. She's got, you know, plants for me to eat and flowers. And she's educated me along the way in a lot of ways. And another, the Pocono Organics has also done a huge shift. I don't know if you're familiar with Poco Organics, but they've made a huge shift into bringing heritage foods back in and and working with a larger organization from Germany. I can't think of the name of it right now um food like like
1: biodynamic uh demeter Demeter is the U. if we're talking about biodynamics i think they're out of out of germany
0: yeah but it's not biodynamics but it's like food the name of their organization is like food for farming or farm food or something but it's about the fact that and I'll look that up and put that in the show notes, but it's about the fact that we don't have enough, like there's 57 types of avocados, yet you walk into Whole Foods, Wegmans or whatever, and they're all Haas avocados from one source in Mexico or Mission, good luck, those are your avocados. And it's just, that's also limited our biodiversity, correct? Like the fact that we're we're commercially farming and then we're only commercially farming one type of tomato one type of lettuce one type of broccoli one type of zucchini one type of i mean listen i get sick just like everybody else does because i eat mostly vegetables broccoli carrots zucchini celery tomatoes green beans asparagus brussels sprouts cauliflower tell me another vegetable everybody's eating all day long like this is it right it gets boring and i love food i love food i love to eat but i get bored with that kind of stuff and i think that's then they want to fry it, they want to pick, you know, we want to do things to make it tastes better, to be more exciting. But I think this is two things we've gotten away from is the diversity in our food and that what food is really about is to nourish us and to feed us. And I feel like part of the reason I feel that I want more food and variety in my diet is I'm like, I'm too conscious at times of like, I'm eating the same broccoli that I've eaten for five years. I need a new broccoli, this isn't giving me enough. It feels good, it tastes good, but I just, Know better that I should have a different type of broccoli and more nutrition, more dense nutrition in there. Can you speak about those subjects a little bit?
1: Well, sure. I mean, uh, anthropologists tell us that that uh, hunter-gatherers, including modern ones uh, that we can, you know, still find in Africa, New Guinea, and so forth. You know, they're eating like 250 species of plants every year. It's just, and we're eating 25 if we're lucky. It's it's a phenomenal difference. So we don't have the kind of microbiome they have as far as the diversity, um, and and so and we're just learning, you know, how much how much depends on just simply having diversity uh, in your microbiome as far as the health outcomes, and yeah, this is a direct consequence of of how we've commercialized uh, the celebrity vegetables. You know, certain vegetables are now the celebrity of whatever, <clears throat> and it's 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 ridiculous. Um, I want to say one thing about avocados, and I haven't researched this in great detail, but from what I understand, all the, you know, the avocado boom. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm get a drink here.
0: If he tells me that I can't eat avocados anymore, y'all, I might fall yeah, off I'm my gonna, chair right now.
1: Yeah, I'm, not, well, I'm just not going to publish this podcast. Because <laughs> yeah. it's like my staple food.
0: What are you going to tell me? I'm bracing myself.
1: I've actually stopped eating avocados because I can't find any that aren't from Mexico. That aren't from Mexico.
0: Oh, that is challenging.
1: I agree. And uh, my understanding is that this massive appetite from the US for avocados is driving deforestation in Mexico um, to plant um, avocados. And as much as I love them, I like forests better. So I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody into it. I think it's something that, uh, in fact, I'd like to be wrong about this. And I haven't researched it in great detail at all. But from what I have heard, I'm like, well, that's enough for me to at least put a moratorium on my avocado consumption until I get around to figuring this out. So I just, eat, I drink a lot more avocado oil. I mean, excuse me, <laughs> I mean olive oil. <laughs> you're not, yeah, you're not doing the, you know, if, unless the avocado oil is coming from a non-Mexico or non-rainforest source. Then. Now, obviously avocados are originally from um, rainforest. And uh, David Wolf and I had a really interesting uh, conversation about avocados in because that's that's his favorite food he's it's his middle name um and so that's the third interview on day one of the eat for earth event and um he he was talking about how they're a pioneer species and uh um and that actually enables us to grow them in more areas uh as far as even arid areas like you know they grow well in southern california if you can get them started and there's not much rainfall there but um so i think it's sort of a subtropical Type not not like you know typical um, equatorial tropical fruit, but uh, so they have some flexibility, can live in somewhat arid areas, and uh, anyway, so that that's my concern about avocados is that they might be such a celebrity uh, fruit slash we think of them as a vegetable, but they're a fruit um, that they're possibly driving some some loss of biodiversity in forests in uh,
0: in Mexico. And I I do appreciate that knowledge. And while I I probably won't stop eating avocados altogether, you're right. I'm going to be more conscious about making sure, especially my avocado oil is not resourced in Mexico and so forth. And, and it's a, you know, this is the thing that we get to vote every single day when we go buy food, when we go hunt and gather, we get to vote about the practices that the people we're buying the food from incorporate, and we're making a choice and we're demanding from them what the quality is that we will pay for. And I get it. Listen, convenience is great. We live in 2021 in a Western culture and convenience is awesome. And it's not as convenient all the time to have the knowledge that we have to eat properly. But we're also, as scientists, looking at the long-term effects of what we're doing from an agricultural and from a species perspective of survivability. And the more we limit our microbiome, the more we're concerned about the survivability and the the lack, the, the strength the, of the organism.
1: Well, my ultimate vision for uh, regenerative agriculture is that it's, um, so there's another term out there that is uh, agroecology. And um, I think that's a better term in a way um, because what I would like to see regenerative agriculture become is ecosystem-based agriculture where, and, and it is, and that's essentially what it is, but it's kind of a, it's a spectrum. Uh, and it's not real well-defined. You know, people say, well, what is regenerative agriculture? And people are asking a good question because, you know, how is it different from organic? Is it different from agroecology? Um, and the key variables I think have to do with how closely does the, this system resemble an ecosystem, a functioning ecosystem? So in general, with agriculture, you've got a lot of monocropping where and whether it's organic or conventional we'll growing on one crop at a time. That's usually what's happening. Now, there are some organic practices that are sometimes used and sometimes not used in that, in organic agriculture that make it more regenerative in the sense that it will. And regenerative has to do with improving soil health. So uh, that's that's kind of the, the key under um undercurrent for regenerative agriculture is it's regenerating soil as opposed to gradually or rapidly depleting soil, which unfortunately a lot of agriculture, a lot of organic agriculture is doing. Um, A lot of organic agriculture because they don't have access, they can't use the, uh, the, the herbicides that they would normally use as a conventional farmer to control weeds. They use more tillage, which means plowing so they're tearing up the soil more. So that can actually be worse overall for the soil health than herbicides. And that's, mm-hmm. and that's kind of a shocking reality that tilling is that bad, that it's, uh, it's potentially better for the system to use a little bit of herbicide. <laughs> I don't like to say that at all. Um, and that's where some controversy arises in regenerative agriculture, because there's people out there that are saying, I'm a regenerative because I'm doing this, this and this and this but they're actually using some glyphosate. And it's like, ooh, you know, is that really necessary? And they're like, well, we're weaning off of it. You know, we're getting there, but we haven't figured out how to eliminate it entirely. And I myself not being a farmer, I can't relate to how exactly, you know, from a personal basis, how hard that might be uh, to get there. It may or may not be hard um, depending on the circumstances. And, you know, a lot of things anywhere, you know, in any realm of life, a lot of things comes down to mindset. And if you have a will, you'll find the way. So I don't know how much of it is people just are kind of still leaning on it because they haven't decided no matter what, I'll find a way to 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 make this work without glyphosate or whatever, even in the smallest amount. So, but you know, I'm not passing judgment on anybody. I don't know, I am not a farmer. I can't pass judgment on that, but that's, that's, that's kind of the complexity that arises in this new world of regenerative agriculture. And so the spectrum is going from adding in cover crops, which now you're adding some biodiversity and it's starting to look a little bit more like an ecosystem and cover crops are simply, it's a mix typically of uh, several to dozens even of species that you grow at the same time with the crop or in between where you grow the crop and then you'll sow the cover crop um, and having more, uh, it's just like in your body when you when you have more plants coming in your mouth, you have more Ah, uh, biodiversity developing in your gut. So when you have more plants uh, growing in the soil, it's contributing to the biodiversity of the of the soil. All the the soil organisms. You got the bacteria, the fungal organisms, the nematodes, which are like little you know little tiny worms, microscopic worms, um, arthropods, which are kind of like insects and micro arthropods, and and of course the insects and it's this whole food web there. And the process of that um, food web becoming more and more diverse builds uh, uh, more and more complex carbon structures in the soil that can hold more minerals, that can hold more water, can hold more oxygen, uh, and uh, hold more carbon from the atmosphere. So that's where uh, the the impact on healing the planet comes in big time is where we can draw down carbon. And so the um, one of the interviews in the Eat for Earth event is with Walter Jena from Australia, and he's he's a brilliant guy, and he's put together a way of, um, thinking about how the climate works. And it's not all about carbon dioxide. It's, it's really, uh, more about water, but the key role of carbon, uh, is in soil. Um, that's really, and we, it, there, the big problem with carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is more so that it gets, it raises the concentration of carbon dioxide in the ocean, which makes the ocean more acidic hmm. because carbon dioxide is actually a, a, a one of the weaker, greenhouse gases. And so increase in carbon dioxide, it's hard to see how, when you really look at the whole picture of climate science, especially through the eyes of Walter, Eno, and he's, you know, he's, he's just talking straight out of climate one on one textbooks. I mean, he's just saying, look, it's before they even started building models based on carbon dioxide. It was well known that water is the main greenhouse gas. And it was well known that the greenhouse effect was a very small part of climate dynamics. And the bigger part is the movement of water. And the movement of water is from, uh, is going like this. It's this giant cycle through the soils. So you got the water, the the water coming out of the ocean. That's the big cycle, and then precipitating down into the um, into the you know on the landscapes and into the soil, and then getting trans uh, transpired back up through plants and evaporated from water bodies like lakes and streams, getting back into the ocean, uh, excuse me, back into the atmosphere. And then the small water cycle is where this is happening over land masses. So you've got the evapotranspiration and evaporation from from the soils through the plants and from the uh, surfaces of water, uh, bodies of water, and then moving over the continent and then raining down again. So you have these two cycles and that's really what's actually pulling heat from the earth up into the atmosphere. Each time uh, a molecule or set of molecules, a drop of water um, rises up through a plant and evaporates in the atmosphere it's pulling a certain amount of what they call latent heat i think it's 592 something (laughs) i forget the actual measurement into the atmosphere when um when a rain event occurs that molecule i mean that that heat that's carried up into the clouds can actually escape into the upper upper atmosphere when Mm -hmm. there's um, when there's precipitation it creates like a it creates sort of a window in the um in the atmosphere for this heat to escape the planet. That's the major flux of heat back out in, into, into space. So you got heat coming in uh, for the, through the solar radiation, and then you got the heat going back out through these uh, um, evaporation events. And um, I definitely recommend listening. I won't try to recap the whole conversation. I've already gone down the rabbit hole a little bit much. I wanna bring it back to um, biodiversity because that's really the key that holds all of this together because you don't get Carbon-rich soils without a certain degree of biodiversity, and you don't get um, high nutrient density without a certain degree of biodiversity in the soil, unless you're actively managing it with, uh, you know, mineral inputs. People talk about you know putting in rock dust and all this stuff. That's expensive and labor-intensive and so forth, and it may not be necessary. It can be a real boost in the short term, uh, but if you want to have really nutrient-rich food, if Elaine Ingham is right. And, um, and she's basically saying that there's enough minerals in, in you know any soil in the world for you to grow plants and nutrient-dense plants if you get the bacterial, well, I shouldn't just limit it to bacteria, but if you get the soil food web really functioning well. Now, there's some people that, um, that would contest that and would say that you have to more actively manage it if you're going for maximum mineral nutrient density in the foods uh, that you're growing so but, but that,
0: that's so similar to our gut like if your gut microbiome works well which is where about 60 to 80 percent of your lymphatic channels are in your gut as well then you're going to have the right microbiome you're going to be able to digest your food absorb your food pull the crap out leave in what you need and move on and it's a self-healing self-generating mechanism as long as i'm feeding it right it'll move everything out correct I mean this is what you're saying if because the cover crops are not just um adding to the soil but I'm sure they're like attracting certain insects and providing you know support for some of the other species of plants because they're feeding or pollinating or you know different things like that like this woman who I have this local farm here for those of you live local Cory Hill Farm and we my son and I go there all the time it's like our our fun place to go to just hang out with the animals and pick up our meat and our eggs and produce. And I think we kind of, at one point she's got, was it 27 species of animals on her farm and it's primarily chickens and eggs, but she has, you know, some horses and some donkeys and sheep and goats and, you know, but she's got emus and she's got pheasants and she's got all sorts to create the best diversity for the chickens. So she creates the best eggs. Mm-hmm. It's all about her eggs. Her eggs are the best eggs I've ever had in my life. And they're, I just, I'm, and, but she's been farming this way for 20 years. Uh huh. To create this ecosystem.
1: I'm really glad you brought up insects because, you know, I kind of uh, gave them short shrift or something uh, by not mentioning them. They're so important. And, and having the plant biodiversity on, you know, on a farm is, is really important to, having the insect biodiversity. And, you know, that's the pollinators and the predatory species that keep the pests, uh, the so-called pests, you know, under control. Uh, there's, in the interview I did with Colin Sice from also from down under, um, he's a friend of, uh, Walter Guinness, and he's developed a system called pasture cropping and mm-hmm. in pasture cropping, he's growing grains, and he's growing raising animals and vegetables all at the same time now the vegetables he's not actually harvesting for uh you know as produce but he could but the sheep actually love the turnips so the sheep are eating the turnips and you know they're grazing and he actually grazes um the cattle and the sheep i think he's also got cattle i know he's got sheep because i've been there i've seen them and got like three four thousand sheep but um he will graze the grain to up to a certain point in their growth cycle, and from what I understand, it causes the the the, the, the plant to sort of bifurcate and have two heads instead of just one, two grain bearing heads on the plant, and so you actually get a a, a more uh, productive crop. Costs per, yeah, yeah. As long as you pull them off before they eat your grain, you know you have to pull the animals yeah, off. Right. The time. And so he's rotating them through different you know pastures and so forth. But the other thing that's fascinating about this. Is okay. So he tells the whole story about how his father uh, started with intensive wheat cultivation, you know, back in the twenties or thirties of you know last century. And you can see he showed these pictures where they the land was just devastated within a few years. It was already eroding and so forth. And um, and they, they you know they kept limping along with industrial inputs and so forth. And then there was a fire, and it wiped out their farm. I think it was in the seventies or eighties, and. Um, and has, has was totally wiped out There's, it was you know he inherited the farm and so forth and he was doing what his father had been doing but he was totally wiped out and he had to figure out a way to farm without um, any kind of inputs because he couldn't afford anything anymore and that's where he j- just thought well what if we just plant right into the stubble you know a little bit of grass and so forth and uh, they that's how they started with their pasture cropping is they just instead of um, plowing up the whole field, they used it like some kind of a drill uh, to you know just to put a little hole and put the seed in it cover it up uh it was you know there's some kind of uh there's equipment for that and i forget the name of it but um that's how pasture cropping got started and it developed into this whole system where he's growing all kinds of different crops and uh, raising animals and the grasslands are coming back so these seeds that have not germinated in you know maybe a century are, are now germinating so they were there they were just waiting for uh, good conditions so now he actually has native grasslands growing on his property that hadn't been there for a very long time and it's actually another crop that he can sell because people want the seeds so they can reintroduce um, native grasses on their on their land there in australia for their for their livestock uh, and the seeds themselves can apparently he thinks uh, or has it ha- or knows i'm not sure which that it's a potential food source so i don't know how good a food source this grass seed is but it might be might be some kind of a human vegan superfood for all i know um i don't know if it's been commercialized yet but this whole idea of pasture cropping is kind of bringing together what we normally expect from agriculture you know a lot of people expect grain right i mean i'm not a big fan of eating grain but a lot of people do and uh, so you get that out of the system plus you get animals plus you get a natural ecosystem coming back where you have the actual grassland so he's got there's it's it's seasonal so their grassland season, I think, is the uh, what we would consider their summer, which would be our winter, it might be just the opposite but, and then, during the other season when it's dry is when they plant the. Um, it Could have it backwards, but I think the dry season is when they actually plant their crops and in the so-called wet season is when they have, when the grassland grows. I could be totally wrong about that part of it.
0: That's okay, but people get the concept that what they're doing is...
1: Restoring an ecosystem.
0: Right, restoring, and that's what's so amazing. Like you can, it's almost dead, and yet there's this tiny little, flutter of life force in that soil and they were able to regenerate that just like in the body you can regenerate it when it's fed properly when it's treated properly and so how did this lead you to your nutrition and your health because you're obviously doing better now than you were in 13 years ago 2007 i guess when you saw that ted talk
1: i'm a little bit dehydrated right now but (laughs) i can totally tell i'm like super underhydrated. um but um well, one of the things that I brought into the eat for earth event that, that relates to my own recovery was, you know, I was uh, very much addicted to having carbohydrates at every meal. And as a result of doing a ketogenic diet for a while, that really kind of liberated me from that and, and it f- helped to fix my metabolism to a certain degree. So I, I included a whole day of, of talks about the ketogenic diet in the eat for earth event. But I also have discovered since then that there's a lot of bioindividuality um, impacting whether a ketogenic diet is appropriate uh, for a person. And there are even, you know, times and cycles of life when it may or may not be as appropriate.
0: And uh, eating ketogenic for a female is very different than eating ketogenic for a male.
1: Very much so. Especially with the cycles. So yeah. there are different parts of the cycle where it may it may work, and there's other parts of the cycle where it's probably Going to be unhealthy. And,
0: and ket- ketosis is a naturally occurring biological mechanism in the body to allow your body to take out its own trash, essentially. And so, you know, that's one great way to eat. But I think both of us would agree that there's no one diet that's perfect for everybody, and that eating a carnivore diet or a, a whole food 30 or a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet or all of that
1: <clears throat>
0: is good information. Well, what would you say about that? Let me not put any words in your mouth. What would you say about all those different types of diets? The carnivore diet, the whole 30, the vegan, the vegetarian, the carnivore diet, the ketogenic diet, the low carb diet, the high fat diet, the Atkins diet. Isn't am I missing any? There's a lot of fads out there.
1: <laughs> Macrobiotics. Oh, thank
0: you. Macrobiotics, juicing, fruitarians.
1: Right. So I look at all of that through the through the lens of bioindividuality and which has various facets. And one of them is genetics, uh, one of them is uh, epigenetics, uh, because the conditions that your parents experienced, especially if there was famine, uh, are going to create epidem- epigenetic changes that are passed down to the children, especially if it actually happened during pregnancy. So if anything that happens during the second and third trimester of a woman's pregnancy is going to uh, create some, some genetic, uh, epigenetic marks that will affect the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, um, the children. And, um, and genetics has a lot more to do with, with it than we thought actually. So you hear a lot out there that, you know, genes load the gun, but lifestyle pulls the trigger or environment pulls the trigger. And right. that's true. It's very true. But the way to know where the triggers are is through is is lar- uh, uh, largely through the genes. So knowing your uh, what they call single nucleotide polymorphisms. So we're learning that some people should not have a high fat diet and some people can have a high fat diet. And I'm oversimplifying dramatically, but some people do not do real well with saturated fats and some people do great with them. So if you just look at it, like, if you don't break it down um, by the individual, you lose, uh, you lose the trees, you know, you just have a forest, you are like, okay, looks like, it looks like we can exonerate all saturated fats, because, you know, when you look at these population level studies, and you separate up, you know, you, um, so basically, there's different types of research. And they've done, you know, in the past, they did a lot of Uh, Epidemiological research, observational studies, where they just look at a whole population and they say, How do we think these people ate? How did they report that they ate? And then we see, you know, who got this disease and who didn't. Well, that conflates a whole lot of variables. And those studies tended to say, tended to give the indication that maybe saturated fat was a problem. And then once we started doing better research, it pretty much totally exonerated saturated fat. But that's at a population level that's not looking at individuals when you start to look at the individual's genetics you start to find out okay these people do fine great with saturated fat but these people they don't do as well and so there there is a genetic uh genetic, uh, uh factor in there
0: and as you said epigenetics because you know a lot of this is in the emotional coding and in the epigenetic level of what's going on to bring on the emotional pieces that essentially translate into mechanisms in the body causing you to create acids, even though you're eating the most alkaline diet, for instance, or inflammation, you need to know you're eating an anti-inflammatory diet, or maybe your genetics just creates inflammation just at the get-go because that's your marker. And so you're eating the most anti-inflammatory diet, yet you're showing up in your blood levels, you have inflammation, you can't figure it out. Well, then maybe you need to look at the genetic component.
1: Yeah, there's actually, there, there are genes that affect exactly that yeah. uh, as far as whether somebody is prone to inflammation, and those people also tend to be prone to, uh, to weight gain as a result. It's a very strong relationship between um, inflammation and, uh, and weight gain. So, uh, and that, you know, there's, there's the dietary component, there's the stress component because uh, chronic stress creates inflammation, and of course there's the microbiome. Anytime the microbiome is damaged, uh, you have a higher risk of, of having uh, inflammation in the gut, which will become systemic inflammation, which will impact, you know, insulin uh, re- uh, sensitivity versus uh, insulin resistance. So it'll tend to promote insul- insulin resistance, and um, so all that comes together as a, you know, entire body burden. Let's say of inflammatory
0: factors. And, and I appreciate everybody sticking through. I know this has been a little bit longer podcast, but the bottom line is what what Brendan is talking about, what he's done on Eat for Earth is paramount in us understanding and exciting because so much of the media of the health information is like depressing, like, oh my God, we live in a toxic bowl of soup and you're completely toxic and your genetics suck and every food out there is depleted. So good luck have a great life. You know, it gets a little bit fatalistic and, and like, Oh, there's no way out. And you're bringing to light that there is a way out that we have the capacity with our knowledge and with the resources to help it all regenerate, to be supportive to both the earth and us.
1: Yeah. I want people to trade in the fear for fascination and fun.
0: Yes. I love it.
1: It is so fascinating
0: it is so fascinating i love talking to you i feel like I, I i'm hopeful that people aren't just bored with our scientific minds but it is so fascinating what we are talking about like it makes me want to not go farming but go talk to people about this farming and get people to watch your eat for life event more and and help promote this in any way i can eat for what i say eat for what i say eat for life yeah yeah what is
1: life. Zach Bush. he said that when i interviewed him <laughs> the first time we interviewed him. So yeah, if you go to-, um, to I'm
0: channeling uh, Dr. Zach Bush because I totally believe in what Zach Bush says in many ways. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's true. Like we need to learn how to get excited and fascinated about how we can make changes rather than feeling like there's nothing we can do. We can't change anything. It's That's the way it is. The bees are dying. There's nothing we can do. There's plenty we can do. We just yeah, have to so have awesome. awareness.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so much more as possible for each of us as an individual and for us as a species uh, if we just get get back to working with nature instead of against nature. And so, if, if people will go and check out the E Fourth of Adam, you get free access for a while. If you go there, you just sign up, you get a, a period of free access, you know, and, and get into some of those interviews. And I think you'll be inspired and uh, and you know lead to some new.
0: Some new paradigm shifts, some new some things to look forward to and, and, and looking forward to changing in our world so we can look for more. Like I look forward to walking into to a, a market, whatever that's going to look like in 20 years and walking in and seeing non-rainforce only sourced avocados in multiple diversities from multiple places that all taste a little different. That's an exciting day.
1: Yeah, I would love, you know, When I traveled in, uh, in Latin America, um, it was so cool to see that there were so many different sizes and shapes of bananas and not that, you know, I, I haven't looked into the sustainability of banana production in Central America, which is probably not very good, but you know, any, any of these products can be produced in a sustainable way. So those little red ones, the little tiny red bananas are so good. And they're just a little different you know from the big you know, red uh, yellow bananas we're used to seeing same thing with avocados it would just be awesome if we could just bring back the diversity and 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 to have farms become ecosystems again because actually this this is what you know biotech doesn't want you to know they don't want you to know that if you grow uh, many species together in many layers in an ecosystem you get far more food per unit of land and that's partly why most of the food produced on this planet is produced by small independent farmers it's not it's not Monsanto and Bayer and whatever are going to feed the world they i mean they're basically uh, putting us on a on a fast track to wiping out our food supply not just in biodiversity but actually the productivity of it because there's there's you know, there have been reports on this by the Union Union of Concerned Scientists where they, this goes back, I think, 10 years almost, they put out this report called Failure to Yield. And the GMO products, under certain circumstances, you get a minor yield gain maybe. In other, other circumstances, it's either neutral or a loss. I mean, there's basically a wash as far as productivity. And, um uh Rodele
0: Farm has a lot of that information if you're interested for that. Rodell Farm on their website has a ton of information about that and there are two white papers as well that have come out and their last white paper was just talking about the fact which is a scientific study that basically just says that we can solve just exactly what Brendan is saying today. We can solve the problem of farming if we just literally all take a little farming home. and create a little biodiversity and support our local farmers instead of the big suits.
1: Yeah, because those 70% of farmers, excuse me, that 70% of food production is coming from 30% of the land from people who have like two two hectares or less. So it's because they're just producing way more food per unit of land, even though they don't have high tech and fertilizers and yada, yada. They've just got a little bit of biodiversity going. (laughs) Right,
0: yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And I hope that everybody goes and checks out Eat for Earth. And he's at free access for quite a while. So share it with your friends, get the word out there, let people know that this is out there. And do you have any other projects you're working on? Because this is like you're tying this project up, or I don't know if this project's ever gonna be tied up, but it's it's a little more done. So what are you working on now?
1: Well, you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk about in Eat for Earth event, as I mentioned in this in this chat is is the the fact that you can eat almost any diet and it can be regenerative for the planet and for your body if it's you know matched to your bioindividuality so um, but the eforth Eve event didn't go as deep into that as I would have wanted in fact I've learned a lot since uh, most of those interviews and so I'm creating a a program called biounique blueprint and it's a it's like a soup to nuts um, exploration it takes people through uh understanding their bio individuality from you know their genetic individuality their uh uh, metabolic individuality uh, nutritional individuality circadian rhythm individuality individuality is too many syllables i got to come up with a shorter word but um (laughs) anyway so all these different and psychological so and there's there's connections between uh certain genes and uh sort of personality traits and how food interplays with that, and and nutritional supplements. If somebody's using supplements to tweak things, um, but you got to do it with a knowledge of how, of you know, how your genes are going to respond to that. And it's the genes are basically determining uh, the versions of enzymes that are running your body. And like Dr. Pizzorno says in my interview with him, I think it was my first interview with him in Earth, um, he said, you know, your body is an enzyme machine. And the enzyme, the spark plugs for the machines, all these, you know, little machines we call enzymes are minerals and that's why minerals are so important. So that's why that was such a big theme there. Uh, But as far as the, the enzymes that we produce, there's multiple variations of these enzymes and that's determined by the particular version of a gene that you have for that enzyme. And so there's people who can have, um, you know, that have enzymes. Most people have heard of MTHFR and that's, that affects their methylation enzymes. And so people that have certain variants of that enzyme, they're gonna have a reduced efficiency in that enzyme. And that makes them more prone to uh, methylation issues where they under methylate. And um, that can be addressed by eating more greens or eating you know, organ meats or whatever it is that a person chooses to do. But it's also really important not to overdo it with supplements. It's ideal to do it with food and, and supplements should be kind of a last uh, resort but if you're going to use them, you got to know, you know, how much uh, to take and to know that it's not, you know, more is better and so forth. So you can get some insights into all of
0: that. Uh, by this understanding- is why not every, there's one like vitamin C is great, but not everybody needs vitamin C. CoQ10 is great, but it doesn't mean everybody needs it. Vitamin D is great, but it doesn't mean everybody needs it. Like I find that, and I'm sure you do too, that like people just, there's a lot of general information out there about what's good what's bad and pe- and things are good and bad and it's just not like that in an ecosystem it's all needed all of it you know and and you've got to have the dark to ex- to enjoy the light right so it's like if i don't eat a crappy i don't know meal once in a while i want to enjoy my good gourmet organic completely biodiverse meal because that that egg won't taste as good if i haven't had a commercial egg her eggs will tend to taste not as good. And then all of a sudden I'll go back to her eggs and be like, oh, or the other, we have this other farm here that has organic eggs. And sometimes if she's out, I'll go there. And they're completely different tastes. And I so appreciate the the taste of her yolk and how each egg tastes a little differently and they're each colored, the shells are differently. I go there and every egg tastes the same and I can't hardly eat them. But then I go back to hers and I like fall in love all over again, you know? And it's important for people to realize that you are individualized and that your body has to be taken into account for where you are in your life, what you're doing, what your activity is, as well as your genetics, as well as all these other little unique, bio-unique blueprints that um, you're gonna be talking about. Very exciting. That is gonna be fascinating and fun without fear, I have a feeling.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, that's <laughs> a biounique.com. Excuse me, biounique blueprint.com.
0: That's awesome. And so if somebody wants to reach out to you and wants to beyond eat for life they can email you at brendan at eatforearth.org correct and yeah,
1: well, i'm actually not i'm not putting out a call for you know for new people to interview for that okay certainly if somebody wants to get in touch yeah they feel free to get in touch um but it sounded like you were saying you know as far as if you want to get on it i don't i didn't know what oh, you no, meant no. Get on it did you no, mean- I meant-
0: if they want to find you or email you for some reason, I'm sure you have your whole stage set for who you're interviewing, but uh, yeah, no, it's more for if you want to access Brendan for the work he's doing and share please his earth for, Meet um, for meetforearthrather.org website and his event. And this is such monumental information. Thank you so much. From myself, the scientific community, the biological community, for doing this, it was so so needed to understand how these two intertwine, because you know I concern myself with the human genome, um, but you're concerned yourself with the two of them together, and that is so incredibly important. Thank you so much for this work you're doing.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. It's it's so much fun, and and um, thanks for having me
0: absolutely and thank you all for sticking with us for the beats today and i know you enjoyed it so go get fascinated have some more fun at the earth for eat for as well as his upcoming is that called an event or a summit or a what, you mean the, what is you yeah
1: is it a it's going to be actually a group coaching program
0: oh okay so look out for that that's cool a coaching program that's very interesting Excellent. Well, thank you all so much and keeping it real here on The Beats.